0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters, spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional
1: dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more.
0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. It has been almost a month since I have left Philadelphia where I have called my home for the past four years. And I left Philadelphia on May 21st and I have been in LA. uh, Today's recording is June 19th, so almost a month. This is the episode where I reflect on my journey and chapter in Philadelphia where I met so many amazing people and where I derived and I was able to collect so many invaluable toolkits into my toolbox and help me grow both professionally, but most importantly, holistically as a person. And this is the episode where I, where I would attempt to distill down some of the five biggest takeaways and lessons uh, from the past four years of my life in Philadelphia, where I called my home as I'm transitioning to Los Angeles, where I'm call- ready to call this new place my home for the next four or five years.
1: I love it, man. It's Been such a pleasure watching this transition and I guess this pivot point come into reality. Um, Discussing it with you the past couple months has been a really interesting and enjoyable experience. And I think that would be a beautiful place to start, is really what made you decide to change your not only career but place of living, just really completely pivot away from everything that you know in Philadelphia to embark on this new journey in psychotherapy in Los Angeles. Um, I think this will be a really timely and relevant conversation because a lot of people that I've talked to are kind of asking bigger questions on the other side of COVID, kind of reevaluating some of their life decisions, their life path, and really, I guess, seeking answers to questions that became available or presented themselves within the great pause that a lot of people have referred to COVID as. So with all that being said, maybe to provide some clarity on your decision-making process, what made you realize that you wanted to change careers into psychotherapy and that process in general would be awesome to speak to
0: yeah you did i really appreciate that insightful question and i love how you called it the great pause that's actually my first time hearing about that Uh, but i agree it is a great pause because life moves on right it's just a temporary halt in the motions of life so that actually brings me and us to our first big lesson lesson number one we don't know what we don't know And I think two particular stories come to my mind uh, and I will share with the first one. And also to answer your question is what prompted my move to not necessarily give up because nothing is wasted, right? We always take what's given to us, so nothing is wasted. But what helped prompted my new transition and my new chapter and my journey in Los Angeles. So I will actually be pivoting for the second time, not just as a job transition, but as a career transition into my second. Uh, calling in clinical psychotherapy. And I was recently accepted into one of the best programs in the country at USC, University of Southern California, into their clinical psychotherapy track. And it's so weird reflecting upon my 28 years of life and what I always thought I knew, what I always thought I wanted to do versus the reality versus what actually unfolded. And that's why it's so important to start all these lessons as we don't know what we don't know. So many of the listeners know that I was a program manager in the nonprofit policy sector. And also many people know that I pivoted for the first time from my career in private sector as a management consultant when I was 21. But what most don't know is I actually wanted to be an ambassador as a diplomat growing up throughout my high school and college. And I spent my adolescent years in three different continents and four different countries. So I was gifted with the unique privilege to have a wide traverse experience and have a, a lot of cultural competencies. And I was able to fortunately call the world as my roots because I grew up all over the world. So naturally to me, it makes sense to lean into that, to become a diplomat. And then what I didn't know is that is not what life and God or the cosmos had planned for me, not even close. When I got into college, I double majored in international relations and economics at Penn State because I knew that just having one major as a liberal arts doesn't really have a lot of competitive advantage in this hyper-competitive economy. So I wanted to sprinkle an additional major, which is economics, and I studied in the specialty of behavior economics because I have a lot of interest in human behavior since the get-go. A few months before graduation, I received quite a few offers, but the offer that I ultimately decided upon was at this consulting firm called Exalicom, And I was offered a position as a management consultant at the time as a junior analyst. I hated my life because I chose that job specifically because of the starting salary at the time was extremely high for a 21 year old. It was the most zeros I've ever seen. And because of the so-called prestige. And so I went against my so-called calling, what I thought was my calling was a diplomat to follow this success, you know, because we put a lot of monetary values, a lot of these career prestige on a pedestal in this American economy. I worked there for exactly five and a half months and I quit without a job because I was utterly miserable. I was living for Fridays. Every Sundays I would have this immense dread. And because Sunday's what I like to consolidate my plan for the week and do my calendar, all the work, and I hated it. I was like, why am I doing this? I was single at the time, so most of my money went straight to clubbing, getting tables, buying drinks for the girls to woo them on the weekends. And obviously, uh, Gary Vee, a pretty popular public influencer, said this many times years before I had this recognition, is don't live for Fridays. Every day should feel like Friday. I never understood that. But then this immense dread prompted me, quitting my job with having a backup plan, which wasn't smart at the time, but when you're so desperate, something must be done, and inaction wasn't part of the plan, and I wasn't going to subjugate myself towards that utter misery and despair for the next 40 years to climb up the corporate ladder. So that was my first career pivot into the nonprofit sector, and after I pivoted, I got into my master's program in education policy at University of Pennsylvania, where I started my master's, So then I thought, oh, education policy is where I'm at, because as we both know, and as many of the listeners may know, there are many avenues for the change. There's many vehicles for the change. But the most effective, in my opinion, is policymaking, because as a lawyer, as a doctor, as practitioner, whatever it may be, you can impact maybe 100 people, 150 people, maybe 200 in a year. But as a policymaker, you can affect the thousands so that's where I've devoted my past four years. And I was ultimately become, I was promoted to become a program manager. And not just a program manager, the youngest. at my former agency at CAADC, which is the largest nonprofit NGO in all of Delaware County. So the next position that's left for me to climb is the director position. And that's pretty great for my age. But then I realized a lot of these societal issues that I had issues with. A lot of these societal issues that I was passionate about were simply the byproduct of unattended emotional health, unattended mental health, and unattended and unhealed trauma. So I realized those were simply the byproduct. Those are the symptoms, and I want to treat the roots. So it ultimately prompted my second career pivot into the clinical psychotherapy space because as an Asian American who grew up in a tiger mom household, I was never taught to prioritize my mental health. I wasn't even taught what mental health was and I realized I am not the only person. Many people share the same struggle Uh, despite your cultural upbringing, despite your skin tone, despite your zip code, despite your socioeconomic privileges. Every single person has mental health as their backbone and mental health is the backbone to everything we do. And our internal and our inner realities always reflect how we perceive the outer realities And I want to help change that. I want to help reimagine the mental health space for not just Asian Americans, but also the veterans. Because I want to pay homage. I am a veteran. I've spent the past five and a half years in the military through the Army training. And I want to help give back. And I know how many people are suffering from their PTSDs and unresolved mental health traumas and illness and health. So
1: yeah, thanks for sharing, man. I think it's definitely a admirable transition. One that's based in both logic for the problem at hand of not trying to do something systemically through policy but really i guess addressing the root cause or the lowest foundational point of the problem as you mentioned it's mental health is kind of the baseline and then a lot of problems kind of surface out of that and from the story you told i'm definitely curious around how this realization came to be was it like a specific instance where you realized that no matter what you did as a program manager, there were still going to be problems that weren't solved in the legislative kind of element? Or was it a more general period of time where your clients were unable to make change no matter how much you supported? So I'm just really interested in that process of what exactly made you have that realization because it's definitely a big transition to have in terms of the way of thinking, right? As a legislator, you're excited to meet with your clients, excited to help them make change, but then that realization um suspecting and maybe filling in some of the conversations that we've previously had there might be a bit of cynicism built in there around no matter what you do there's only so much a non-clinical profession can have so
0: yeah great question aiden so it's actually a multitude and all of the above i realized that yes also i wouldn't call myself quite a legislator because i wasn't actually a policymaker but i worked with the government But yes, I was able to sit at quite a few tables and been in some of those rooms where those discussions took place. But what I realized is, yes, as a policymaker and as we, the service providers and the government and the contractors all work together to create and establish these policies, a lot of these marginalized and disenfranchised groups and communities do benefit a lot from these policies. But then there's so much barriers and a lot of those barriers are self-inflicted from the government because of the hierarchies, because of the bureaucracy, because of to do one thing, you have to check 14 boxes. It's very frustrating because I think in most profession, once you identify a barrier, you can get to the next step, which is to address a barrier. How do you address a barrier? By coming up with a series or an array of solutions, right? And then you brainstorm and you start vetting those. You go through a vetting process through those problem solvings. But that's not how government works. Even when you're able to identify a barrier, you have to go through 14 different hoops to even discuss and talk about the barrier. Once you talk about the barrier, then you have to have a meeting about talking about the barrier, right? It's like in that corporate structure, as I'm sure you're familiar with, to have a meeting, you have to have a meeting about having a meeting. That fucking blows. (laughs) Like it blows. And I know that because as a manager, I had to do that a few times and, and it's horrible, but you get sucked into this giant machine, this slog machines of, yes, we want to do good things, we want to create positive impact, but at what cost? And I've seen so many amazing people, and I'll share one specific example to answer your question is, is what I realized that yes, policymaking is the most effective avenue for massive change, in my opinion, but it comes at a cost. And I didn't realize what that cost was until COVID. So and my former agency, not CADC, But uh, at CMAC, where I was a trends case manager and when I worked a lot with the school leadership, uh, our CEO, uh, he started a program, food distribution program, when COVID first hit without consulting with the leadership board because he was so fed up with the bureaucracy. And he has decades. He has like 30 plus years in this space. And he was advisor to the city council in Philadelphia. He was like the 14 time advisor to the mayor. So he's extremely well-known, and he's a very competent guy. But he did a series of very unethical things, both ethically and professionally, to expedite the establishment of this food distribution program to help out the elders who weren't able to go grocery shopping by themselves due to the danger and the fear when the COVID first hit, which made amazing. It made the local news. It was on the news for Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. It was, it was huge. But then he fucked over a lot of people in the agencies. He created this artificial barrier or hurdle for the truancy department to trying to obtain this 100K plus funding that's reserved for our program. That's how contracts work. So for the sake of he's trying to streamline this resource for his own food stream program, that doesn't even make sense. So I don't wanna to go too deep into the nitty gritties of it, but I realize highly competent person like him, who is highly ambitious, very pragmatic, and very, very capable. He became the person that he shouldn't become. And I think if the current present time him travel back in time into the 20 year old him, I think he would get criticized on. And I don't want to become a person like him or I don't want to become many people out there who's doing amazing work. I don't want to diss what the CEO is doing. He's doing amazing work, but at what cost. And i realized I, w- I made a decision at that point once i found out him and many other anecdotal evidence and many other people who have came across in the government in the public sector is many of us who joined this industry because we're idealistic we want to make a positive change in this world but at what cost and at first i was pretty naive and i thought to myself i'm different i will be able to stay hold true to myself i will be able to uphold my integrity But I'm sure all those people who came before me thought the same thing, right? I'm sure all those people who came before me who wanted to go into politics thought they could be the humanitarian politician, they could be the ethical politician. But look around, right? Like after years of years of, you know, hitting into the wall, getting face planted, people change. And I think you have to start compromising. And I don't want to compromise my soul for the sake of impact. As that realization hit me, it was pretty profound because I realized we don't know what we don't know. Is we are often so caught up in what we think we know, our perceived idea of the world, our perceived idea of how the world should operate, how we should operate, especially people like us who are achievers, we are very overly in our head, but then our head isn't entirely the reality, right? That's just in our minds. The inner reality isn't the same as external reality. And that's what I realized is we can't always be so caught up on what we want to do. Sometimes it doesn't really matter. It's just that life has grander plan for you. And that's all redirections, right? Oftentimes we view rejections as failures, but sometimes it could be perceived as redirections. So I think my two career pivots within six years, um, my army deployments, uh, my path of reality that straight away from my intended path of becoming a diplomat growing up my whole life to becoming a management consultant to I thought I wanted to become a policymaker into the current present day of Benoit Kim is no, that's not what life had planned for me and life is bigger than we are, period. And all we can do is be receptive towards what life has planned for us and we just really don't know what we don't know. So all we can do is just be open-minded for the change, for what life has planned for us.
1: Definitely, man. I really love a lot of the ideas that you brought up. And I think everything that you kind of just described really demands humility, right? That humble approach to admit that we don't know what we don't know It's kind of leaning into the growth mindset, the student's mindset that, hey, other people know things more than us. We don't have everything figured out, but really like seeking those answers. And that demands both a humility as well as a vulnerability, right? I think it's vulnerable to say, hey, we don't have this figured out. Uh, Asking for help. I know that's a resistance I've had for a while growing up, trying to figure life out myself. Sometimes it's difficult to go over, ask for help, maybe from a family member or a friend a therapist, a coach, but really leaning into those vulnerability ideas, leaning into those humility ideas, really, to me, represents the key to figuring out some of those bigger questions that I think your job transition really paints an elegant picture of. So I really love that one lesson. And then I think that brings us into the second lesson really well that I'd love to hear you speak on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, that does lead us into the second lesson that I personally took away from my life and my chapter in Philadelphia, which is lesson number two, vulnerability is strength. And of course, that is not our idea. That is the idea initiated by Brene Brown. She's a prominent researcher, and she's known for studying shame and guilt. And she has Netflix special on Netflix. I would recommend a lot of people check it out if you haven't heard of her before. So this lesson isn't as detailed as the first one, because we've embodied this idea in this lesson that vulnerability strength throughout the podcast throughout the past 70 plus episodes that we've established. So I'm sure many listeners have heard this from us many times. So I'll keep it pretty brief. Many of our listeners and a lot of my friends often ask me, you know, what is your key ingredients? What is your secret ingredients and your pillars for a podcast? And I always tell them there's two pieces. Piece number one is presence. By being entirely present, we are forced to neglect our own ideas, our own thoughts, our urge to talk over guests, our urge to share when it isn't our time to share, but rather for us to submit to what the guest has to share. And through that, magic happens. The
1: key
0: ingredient number two is vulnerability. Is you and I, Adam, we often share very vulnerable things about our lives whenever the interview takes place at that very moment and the very specific timeline in our lives to help warm up the guests, to help open them up. Because I do believe that having to bridge other personalities seemingly having no issues is very, very dangerous and it doesn't help his trustworthiness. That's empirical evidence. A lot of literature suggests that vulnerable people is easier for them to gain trust. So we often like to share something that's vulnerable that's going on concurrently in our lives And as we see, often nine or eight out of 10 times, the guests become immediately more open. it's a very visible change in energy. And also on the show, we are very vulnerable because we do believe that vulnerability is truly strength. And if you truly think about all those times, the most courageous moments required the most vulnerability. And without vulnerability, without that discomfort, there truly isn't comfort. Or that's something we preach about is because we truly subscribe to that idea. And I think that's what allowed us to become the podcast that we have now. The more specific story that comes to my mind is, um, I think this is what my girlfriend Becky told me is, I'm very, very open. And I, I share a lot about my vulnerable past in the show, whether it's my major depression from my army deployment days, or all those struggles I'm going through in and outside of this podcast. But Becky told me, if you're very comfortable about sharing these vulnerable parts by yourself, Are you truly vulnerable? That made me think, because to me, those were my past. Those are my experiences. But maybe I became too comfortable with them. That's why by me sharing about my vulnerability or some parts of my vulnerable past, maybe I don't feel vulnerable anymore. I'm just sharing what happened to me. To the listeners, to what other people, they're like, wow, Benoit is sharing something vulnerable. She urged me to think that may be the case, but what about me? How do I feel about those stories I'm sharing? And I realized, ah, a lot of the stories that I share, yes, they were vulnerable, but they are no longer vulnerable pieces of me. That's why they're just stories. And I think the vulnerable power is still there, but it doesn't apply to me anymore. I share this specifically because about a month and a half ago, uh, my girlfriend, Becky actually broke up with me over the most intensive and most challenging breakup ever and the fight ever. We've been dating for a year and a half, and this fight happens a month before we were supposed to relocate to Los Angeles. This was two days after we signed our lease in L.A. So you can imagine the unfathomable anxiety and sadness I felt because I was about to move across the country just to find out she broke up with me. right? And that's what I called the most intensive emotional training center I went through. It was a week. I literally experienced heartbreak for the first time. I vomited. I I, I never I never understood what people mean heart sick. I felt it. I literally felt like someone was squishing my heart from inside out. And I held this, like literally compulsive urge to vomit. And I literally went to the bathroom and puked for like five minutes after she broke up. Or Becky said, "I I don't think this is gonna work out. Let's end this." And I cried. And I was actually on my knees i got on my knees for the first time to beg her to reconsider i've never been on my knees before and i am a six foot male i'm 28 years old i'm in the military i don't get on my knees i just don't and i did and she nothing helped uh getting on my knees didn't help She, she seeing me literally crying didn't help she see me puking didn't help what helped was after the math when she told me is because i asked her you know obviously we're back together now and that breakup prompted the most profound and needed healing in both of us. And it it showed me all the shortcomings I've had as a partner. And it really made me aware of my flaws, because you can't change what you're unaware of, right? That's why awareness is very important. But she told me that what truly helped for her to reconsider our relationship and our future is that when I was talking to her during our conversation afterwards, she felt the barriers and the walls finally fell down. She felt a new openness from me. And she felt the level of vulnerability I've never displayed ever throughout our relationship. And that's when I realized, oh, just me telling my stories, that doesn't mean I'm vulnerable. Yes, those are parts of my vulnerable experiences, but if I don't feel vulnerable anymore, then it's not vulnerability, right? And she was able to reconsider because she felt it. She felt I was truly in a vulnerable place. And I realized that's something I need to work on is just sharing isn't enough. I need to feel it because it's that synergy that's being in sync. It truly makes you be vulnerable. And I think that's why lesson two is very important for me is it's not only because it helped salvage my relationship a month before I was about to move across the country, but because it's what prompted the healing that came afterwards. It's a healing that I, I didn't even think I needed it, but I did
1: so. Really well said, man. I think there's a lot of things in there that I want to pose back, but one of the things I'd like to highlight is what you said around change and that we can't change what we're not aware of. And that I think is something I'd like to just double click on for a minute. Cause it's really important. Awareness is kind of the base step before any other approaches to change. Um, I look at it in like a three piece framework of awareness, acceptance, and then action. And then on the other side of that action is reflection. And then it all kind of comes back together, right? Once you reflect, then you can become aware again, accept again, and then act again. So that's just a really powerful framework that I've used to think about change in my own life that I'd like to kind of you know highlight from the story that you posed. And then a question that I think the story demands a bit, I mean, you alluded to some of the ideas, but do you think that vulnerability demands discomfort? That was the question that Becky alluded to a little bit, but as you said, we all kind of are on a spectrum of different comfort levels, both around sharing, but then also around acceptance and awareness, right? Different people are comfortable with admitting different things about themselves, both internally to themselves and then also externally to other people. So I guess this is like a bit of a definition that, you know, maybe we can ring Brene Brown and see, but does vulnerability demand discomfort?
0: That is an amazing question, and I think yes, because if you just use my specific anecdotal example from my end, is everything I shared, there are objectively vulnerable experiences to many people and to me at that timeline of myself when I experienced that, right? And obviously, it's about neural pathways. I think, obviously, there's personality differences, there's different cultivated practice and experiences, but me as a whole, I'm very direct, I'm very outgoing, I'm very extroverted, So sharing and talking about myself and talking about my stories, they're not uncomfortable for me, right? If you think about the genesis of our podcast, when I presented this idea to you to start a podcast with me, to start this new vision together, I was very excited. And I remember you are shitting yourself, like what talking about our experiences in public, right? So in that sense, I'm way more open and it comes easier for me. And I think I just simply have built more neural pathways that enable me to share these things. I think those things can be cultivated. And once you do that, over time, becomes becomes very easy. Like for us, we haven't recorded and hopped on a mic in a month, but like 20 minutes in, it flows, right? And it gets easier and easier. But I think vulnerability, I think true vulnerability requires true discomfort. So if the presenter doesn't feel any discomfort sharing whatever I'm about to share, then how is that being vulnerable? I think the definition of vulnerability is inherent to discomfort right and vice versa so i think you're spot on i do think that there is no true vulnerability without true discomfort and if you're if you feel comfortable sharing whatever you want to share then that may be a vulnerable pieces of your experience of the past but currently speaking you're not vulnerable at that very moment Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and i think so what you just alluded to is it's a bit of a spectrum that kind of continues to build and or fade depending on life circumstances and just what neuropathways pathways are being built, what experiences are being shared. I mean, personally, starting this podcast has been the biggest vehicle for becoming more vulnerable just through talking to people, talking to you, sharing this with our listeners. But really it's a spectrum that continues to change. And that I think should be an encouraging sign for anyone listening to this because vulnerability gets easier as it becomes a practice. As you say, become more vulnerable with friends and family, people that you feel very close with, and then you can open up more and more with strangers, first time meeting people, coworkers, et cetera, but really using it as a practice and continuing to be curious around where we can become more vulnerable time after time.
0: Yeah, so obviously, Curiosity's power, the lesson number three has been an important driving it's actually been the most important driving force of the genesis of the podcast. Like what do you think, Aiden, as the creator of the newsletter, our most recent project? Obviously the curiosity is such an important pillar in not just my life, but in both of our lives. But specifically to you, why did you feel the urge and why did you think it was so important to make the second edition of our newsletter? to be centered around the theme of curiosity?
1: So I've been thinking a lot about curiosity really since we started the podcast, because it's kind of like, I guess the intersecting bridge of all of our guests who've had wide ranging experiences of all professions, all life experiences, really all over the map. But curiosity was kind of like the through point or the centerpiece of a lot of their experiences. And then ultimately the way that we're able to extract value from those conversations. It's really curiosity is the thing that pulls, whereas motivation pushes. And that's an idea that I just found out through a book that I'm reading called The Art of Impossible. And it's by an author named Stephen Kotler, who runs the Flow Institute, I believe it's called, but he basically studies the state of flow and how that affects peak performance and long-term success. And his whole idea is leaning into curiosity, because uh, I'll take a Quick quote from the newsletter that we put out, but he writes when we're curious about a subject doing the hard work to learn about that subject doesn't feel like hard work. It requires effort for certain, but it feels like play and really I kind of went into a full stop when I read that because it's such a powerful idea that whenever we're curious about something it doesn't require hard work we're naturally drawn to those things and really leaning into those natural curiosities, I think, is where where our power really lies right because. Like say when you go down an internet rabbit hole for three hours, just clicking on different links of this thing reminds you of this thing and then that thing brings you to this new point. It's just such a effortless flow of wherever our inherent curiosities and interest lies. And I kind of zoomed out a little bit and saw how can we bring more curiosity to our own lives and encourage people to bring curiosity into their lives. And that I think really the place that I want to go next because I've realized after reflecting on this book that it's ultimately our personal curiosities and where those curiosities intersect is where our power lies. I think we all have inherent interests, right? You and I both like health. We both like health and fitness, but it's really the combination of those things of, yes, health, fitness, but also podcasts, also psychology, also motivational interviewing, really, we all have inherent interests that we probably share with numerous people, but really getting solidified on the 20 to 30 things that make us uniquely ourselves and leaning into those curiosities, I feel is where our power is, where we're able to discover the things that make us the most ourselves. And that I just think is a really freeing idea, right? So curiosity, I feel both our interests And then also where we want to go in the world. So really, A, this kind of comes back to the change process. It's becoming aware of what our curiosities are, accepting them, and then acting on them. Maybe it's studying a little bit more. Maybe it's tying together new curiosities, learning a lot more about one specific one or how to intersect, and then reflecting on that whole process and going back through it. So through the podcast, I've realized that curiosity is a big value, but kind of exploring it in both conceptual ways of what curiosity does, and then also how curiosity affects me has been really, really instrumental. And I would highly, highly recommend our listeners to kind of explore what they're curious about and how they can create intersections from those curiosities, because that's ultimately where their unique power is.
0: That's amazing, amazing, said, man. And to all the listeners, that was merely a snippet and a glimpse into this amazing newsletter that Aiden cultivated and are currently curating so if you want to check it out you should definitely check out the link in this episode notes below and the link is also in our instagram and all of our associated accounts and we would highly recommend it's a pretty simple and brief newsletter we do not want to bombard you with all these incessant information we're simply trying to summarize some of the highest takeaways from the books we're reading from the music we're listening to from the podcast we're tuning into that week and we just want to share a few high level things with the listeners trying to contribute a little more value to your days, because we do think that um, the more you consume, hopefully it will help change your life in some positive way. So we should definitely check it out in the show notes below. Yeah. With that being said, I, I can't have said it any better and I relate hundred percent and just a quick anecdote to that is if you look at how we became friends, how we became such amazing fast friends, actually, where we're literally just two dudes benching. Five in the morning at Swipe Fitness, a random local small gym in Philadelphia. And now we've been friends for three and a half years. We have created this amazing podcast with 70 plus episodes who received numerous sponsorship in the past. We have started a website together. We have started newsletter. Also, Discover More LLC, our business. All that are at con- contraception of our friendship. And we were able to become friends because of the curiosity mindset, because of the student mindset. But more specifically, I want to give you some digital flowers. And I want to give you some affirmations is that you are definitely way better at asking questions, at least initially. I think you and I, we both uphold the integrity of curiosity. And we both understand curiosity is a very integral part of our lives, period. But you've always been the more intentional one with questioning. That's why our previous very rough draft of an idea that we had was you're the questioner you're the interviewer, quote unquote, for the podcast, and I'm the content generator for the podcast, but obviously our roles have interchanged and I'm molded into one uh, for the past a year and a half. Uh, but you are extremely good at asking questions. And I think that speaks to the amazing friends that you have that speaks to all these recent amazing date successes, the dates that you've been on, um, uh, because I think the ability to ask questions, the ability to be curious transcends just the podcast. Transcends just the self help, transcends just the personal development. I think it has so many upsides that you can only experience once you're open to that curiosity, once you're open to that door, to that gateway. So, really amazingly
1: said, man. Appreciate that, man. And I think it really comes like curiosity comes from humility at the end of the day. I remember that was when we first met. The first book I think that we discussed was Ego is the Enemy by Raleigh and Holiday and that i guess idea of stoic philosophy putting our own egos aside and trying to both strive into this discomfort and do what's best for the whole rather than the individual was kind of i guess our first deep conversation really that you know took place on the side of a bench or the deadlift platform i don't really know where in the gym but it took place in the gym on a random morning and talking about ego is the enemy so really that i think is a great point that I think you just tied in is that curiosity is only possible through humility, right? If you think you have all the answers, this comes back to our first, uh, our first lesson as well. So really continuing to stay open, continuing to stay humble and continuing to stay curious is really the things that this podcast and our friendship has really encouraged me to continue to do day after day.
0: Yeah. And that is such a seamless transition into my lesson. Number four, which is always be humble. And I've shared this on Jacqueline's episode before. She's an amazing life coach, a published author. She gave out a TED talk uh, last year. Uh, We should definitely check out the episode. I'm definitely more on a spectrum of confidence and on a spectrum of confidence to arrogance. I'm definitely personally more prone to arrogance. Uh, because of my experiences, because of maybe how I'm wired. My mom was also extremely, she's, she's a tiger mom. She's very capable and she was also very, very arrogant. So there's a lot of nurture and nature genetics factors to that. It's very weird. I'm very spiritual and religious, but it's also very meta. So for the past 10 or so years consistently, every single time, due to whatever numerous lists of accomplishments or achievements, or however things are contributing to how great I was feeling. Anytime I was feeling on top of the world for a prolonged period of time, I would become arrogant and the arrogance would show in different avenues of my life. God would use life as a force to slap my sense of equilibrium upside down and say, Nope, not today. And I will usually go through like a month of extreme emotional turmoil and extreme emotional vulnerable moments in those deep pain. I usually derive the most lessons that's our ethos of pain to purpose right um so uh, a story that comes to my mind is so like i said i was recently accepted to usc for my clinical psychotherapy track so i actually applied to five grad schools to maximize my alignment with my girlfriend's uh, internal medicine residency match because she's an md when it came to the location of California. We chose upon LA because San Francisco, where she's, where my girlfriend's from the Bay area, they don't really have a lot of good program for my track. So I decided to apply to UCLA, which is one of the best programs in the LA region. And there is another top program that's USC, but USC costs three times as much as UCLA because USC is a private school, but UCLA is a public school. And I will be eligible for in-state tuition because I went to high school in San Diego. So I was feeling on top of what at that point, because at that point, I already knew my competitive package, I already spoke with admissions officers, I knew my chance of admission is very, very high. And I knew what I had to bring on the table. And also at that timeline, everything in my life was going swimmingly well, my, my relationship was thriving, my job was thriving, I just got recently promoted to the to become the youngest program manager in my entire agency. So life was great. So I became arrogant i was like of course i will get into ucla why would i even apply to usc where i can't really afford to go to begin with so i finished my application for ucla and the very last moment before usc's application window closed a sense of rationality kicked in saying benoit come on now have a backup plan just in case what if you don't get in so i applied to usc very last minute after I found out they have some pretty good tuition assistance, uh, support system for the veterans. So I said, okay, maybe there's a shot I could afford this high cost education at USC. Fast forward a month and a half, I got accepted to Columbia University. I got accepted to University of Michigan, which was the number one program in the country. I got accepted to USC. The night I found out I got accepted to USC, I received a rejection letter by UCLA saying I did not get accepted to UCLA. Uh, I don't want to speculate why I didn't get into UCLA, because if I got into Columbia and UMich, I definitely should have gotten to UCLA. Uh, But that's just a fact of matter. It just happened. Right. And I realized if I let my arrogance got the best of me at that very moment, the split decision making window, I would be fucked. I would not have a program to go to right now. I would be working. I would have postponed my purposeful calling in clinical psychotherapy for additional year to wait for the next academic year, right? And that would have, you know, swirled some unexpected changes in current timeline. So that's the story that I'm calling myself. And it's because I think humility is so important because it's not just about how we feel when we're not humble or how we feel when we're arrogant, but also about how do the others feel? How am I affecting their feelings based on the things I say without thinking it twice, without being less considerate? I think consideration comes in all avenues of life, but when you're not humble, when you're speaking from a point of arrogance, there's not a lot of consideration embodied in those messages, whether you intended or not, right? It's always a timeless battle between intention and impact. And although my intention always, well, I'm never ill intended, at least I hope not. The impact is still very, very indisputably important and impact is always there. And I think that's something I learned from my breakup with Becky, from my rejection to UCLA, and a couple other series of events that all taught me that Benoit, humility is an important pillar. Never forget that. Because if I am not humble, God will use life as a slapping stick to slap me in the face because he has done so consistently for the past decade. And I think this lesson and what I just shared ties beautifully into this book I'm currently reading called Think Again by Adam Grant. And there's a quote I'd like to share from that book, uh, from the chapter I'm currently reading. The quote goes, knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is knowing what you don't know. Let me say that one more time. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is knowing what you don't know. And yes, that's sort of similar to our lesson number one, but I think it's more specific because I think we're always so caught up on what we know. Right, Because, oh, look at how much I know. Look at all these credentials. Look at all these degrees. Look at all these. And obviously, for me personally, I like to flex my knowledge. I like to share all the things I learned, all this knowledge I've consumed from podcasts, from books. Because it makes me feel good. Not just makes me feel smart. Not as much, but it just feels good to share what I know. But I think the wisdom is knowing what you don't know is so profound. It's so important to distinguish because like, outside of what we know is everything we don't know. What that means is what we know is only the fragment of everything out there. So I think if we get too arrogant, we're going to be resistant towards new knowledge, new beliefs, new idiosyncrasies, new belief system, new ideals. And I think that's a very dangerous slope to go down on because there's
1: so much to learn out there. I love the quote that you shared by Adam Grant. Uh, I think that balance or relationship between knowledge and wisdom is one that I've been thinking a lot about because in the age of social media, where you know, content, knowledge, all of that is just so widespread, both in the written form, the audio form, the visual form, like we've got knowledge for days. I don't think anyone in society right now has a problem with knowledge, right? You can find out anything you want to find out at a number of ways from a number of different teachers online. But really, I feel that society at large has like a wisdom problem or a issue converting that knowledge into wisdom. I know from my experience, that's definitely the case of, knowing all the things, all the things we should be doing or the approaches to take, but really then creating that wisdom out of it is, you know, like embodiment of that specific knowledge. Actually living the things that we may know is really the challenge that I continue to come up in day after day and would encourage people to think about that relationship between knowledge and wisdom, how we're using the things that we find out and learn and read about and then actually practice and live and share with other people. And I think that relationship between knowledge and wisdom also really reminds me of the relationship between intention and surrender. And that was one of the biggest conversations we've had in this past year off the mic, just kind of talking about that relationship because for people that are so type A like we are, as you know, a lot of the people listening to the show are like go get productive, enjoy the high of getting a lot done, Intention is always important, but also, as we said earlier, life continues to throw curveballs balls and things that we can't control. I feel that COVID was kind of a masterclass in that whole idea of having to let go that the world has other ideas, no matter how much we want to control it or intend on doing specific things. So how do you think about that balance between intention and surrender?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I will answer that question and now I'll move into lesson number five. I think that the balance, I think the act of balance is the balance itself, which is one of our takeaways from our retreat cabin weekend, uh, with our episode 62, the reflective episode. And I think intention is always important because it is what drives us. It's what starts us, right? Like without the intention of leaving for the day, you wouldn't leave your apartment. You wouldn't wake up. You wouldn't say your alarm the night before you wouldn't go to work. So without intention, like there's no life, like there's no action, period.
1: Real quick, could you unpack that a little bit? Like, Because we've talked about it, I understand what you mean by the act of balancing is the balancing itself, but I'd love for some more clarity for listeners as to like how you think about that or what that exactly means, just in a little bit more specific terminology. Yeah,
0: a good question. So very quickly, uh, what I mean by that is, because we always talk about how can we balance between the consumption and the creation? How can we balance the life and the work? And I think the examples of like Aristotle's virtue and vice come to my mind, right? Without the virtues, you wouldn't understand what vice is. Vice versa, without the vice, you wouldn't understand what virtue is. Similarly with yin and yang. Without the yin, there's no yang. Without the yang, there's no yin. That's why a lot of our ethos in terms of there's truly no comfort without discomfort. There's truly no light without darkness. Because if you don't experience what darkness is, how can you appreciate what life is? So yeah in that sense intention is very very important because it is what it is the foundation is the bedrock but then surrender i think is more important is actually what my lesson number five is is lesson number five surrender is the way and that's sort of like a play on words based on ryan holiday's book obstacle is the way which is another book of grace stoic philosophies and of course you know obstacle is the way because like we talked about before sufferings and obstacles are inherent to what we call life and but i think in terms of the specific balancing act between intention and surrender i think surrender is more paramount in a sense because intention is what gets us off the bed to begin with but the entire journey from the starting point to the finish line life dictates what happens after you leave your apartment after you wake up And what we can control, the amount of controllable variables in this life is so finite. And the amount of uncontrollable variables are paramount to what we can control. So on that sense, I think it's more important to surrender, which is the reason why I intentionally wanted to make that our final lesson for this episode is surrender is the way. This is also gonna be a pretty short lesson because we've talked about this a lot recently, uh, but I do wanna share a quick um, story is uh, As some of the listeners may know, in 2017, uh, four and a half years ago, I went through my first army and my only army deployment to the North-South Korea board at the time. The tension between Mr. Trump and North Korea, Kim Jong-un, was rising very, very steadily. And it was very, very high tension and potentially high hostile environment at that time. I never knew I would get deployed one day. I joined the army when it was pretty peaceful. There was no wars going on at bay, except Afghanistan, Iraq, which is the constant proxy wars going on in the Middle East, But except those. And I knew I wouldn't get deployed to Syria anytime soon. So then when I received the news and the announcement of this deployment, my life crumbled. All my plans crumbled. I had to take a leave of absence from the University of Pennsylvania at that time. I had to take a leave of absence from my commitment at Teach for America. A lot of these things happened. In retrospect, the sad part is all this anxiety, all this crippling fear and despair came even before the deployment happened. It was from the looming deployments, not the actual deployments. It was from this incessant thinking and this incessant anxiety from awaiting to actually get mobilized, to get deployed to the border, to the North and South Korea border. And that's one of these things that there's a gap between knowing what to do versus embodying and actually living the lesson. And as someone who's very type A and as a thinker with my personality traits, I like to front load against the unknown. And what I mean by front loading is I like to do a lot of decision making. I like to do a lot of my thinking beforehand. It's like what Einstein said, right? He spends 97% of his time on thinking about the problem, but actually 3% on actually solving the problem. That's what I like to do in a lot of my ways because I like to front load a lot. Because by front loading, you mitigate and sometimes you can eliminate a lot of the uncertainties. But that was a huge disservice to me in this very specific instance of deployments because everything was unknown. The only known was I was going to get deployed. So there was not a lot for me to work around. There was not a lot of data. There was not a lot of information. There was no context for me to deal with. So how can I front load against that scenario? The answer is you couldn't. And I knew that at the time, but I still couldn't help it. Biologically, physiologically, psychologically, I still got into that dark pit of despair and tried to do all these calculations. But it was a futile effort. It was pointless, literally meaningless. And the result was just double the anxiety, double the despair, double the fear. right? And that's why I think it's and the only way I learned from that is surrendering. Is there is nothing I could do but to submit to the will of God, to the will of the cosmos, the life. Because as we said in the beginning of this episode, life is just so much grander than we are, period. There's no but. That's it. So I think uh, to ultimately go back to your question in the beginning of the lesson, is that the balancing act between intention and surrender is the act of balancing that I will be continuing to live on for the rest of my life. Because like I said, without the virtue, there's no vice. But I do think that when you're dealing with life, when you're dealing with the monstrosity and the totality of life, all we can do is to surrender and just to work on what we can control, which is a very finite amount of that piece of pie. So.
1: Definitely, man. Yeah, really well said. It gives me a lot of stoic philosophy vibes of, you know, controlling the controllable and letting go of the uncontrollable. Um, which is something we've talked about a lot, both on the mic and off the mic over the last few years. I think like it's a pretty good place to kind of come full circle. I know that you wrote a bit of a tribute to the last few months that I'd love for you to share, but uh, before that, just really wanna echo, you know, how excited I am for you for this new journey and how proud of you that I am for all of the work that's gone into this transition. I know that a full job pivot right after a pandemic isn't an easy walk in the park. So really just want to kind of acknowledge you for taking those steps towards something that you feel called to do and uh really love doing this conversation always hopping on and doing these reflections is a blast so would love to kind of just leave the listeners with this tribute that you wrote down
0: thanks man appreciate that and i just want to say before i read my um, reflection that i wrote down a while back is letting go is not easy uh, that's something that i've been praying consistently for the past six months I would say uh, with the uncertainties of Becky's match day outcome, which ultimately led us to Kaiser in LA. But yeah, letting go is not easy. And that's something that I need to continually cultivate till I die because like we said, the act of balancing is the balancing itself. So, but with that being said, I would love to read my reflection with the listeners and hopefully some of you may take away some of the lessons, some of my reflections, some of my sentiment from this um, journal. Life is so strange. I mean, life is truly filled with mystery, randomness, and uncertainty. On March 27, 2021, I posted some of my reflections on life's dualistic nature, and here we are again in a similar mental crossroad. Shortly after our celebration of Becky's residency match and my grad school outcome, we got into what I called the worst week of my existence. In parentheses, 100% my faults. AKA the most emotionally intense fights during our nearly two year relationship not to mention the fight transpired merely a month before we're about to move to la and start our next chapter of our life together throughout our fight that lasted about a week i experienced the entire spectrum of negative emotions like crippling headache heartache immense fear and unimaginable frustration and doubts in fact becky actually broke up with me the night before our final talk which eventually led us to have the most profoundly groundbreaking conversation to this date. Does that sound familiar? It's once again the integral relationship between pain and purpose. Flash forward to Wednesday on April 28th, 2021, about a month after I posted that on social media, I just got off the phone with Ron, the Assistant Director of Missions at USC, who unexpectedly informed me that I would be awarded a scholarship of additional $24,000 endowment funds that would effectively push my total awarded scholarship to $62,000 with two additional stipend scholarships that I'm currently working on. For some context, I have been in constant communication with Ron to ask the school to take a chance on me by committing more available scholarships due to recently discovering that I have lost my entitled GI Bill of over $13,000, which is entitled tuition assistance for veterans. If I were to be selected for the aforementioned two stipend scholarships, then I will be able to successfully pursue my purposeful calling in my Master's of Clinical Psychotherapy at USC. You guessed it, for free. I cried and shed quite a few tears after getting off the phone with Ron, because that news single-handedly altered my financial circumstances, given my foreseeable unemployment status, living in one of the most expensive cities for the next two years. The news also prompts me to think about the past three weeks where my girlfriend broke up with me, the unexpected loss of $13,000 of GI bill and scrambling to come up with potential new plans for my future in LA by myself. As soon as I thought it's going to be a smooth ride here and out, life would slap my sense of equilibrium upside down with its uniquely twisted sense of humor. Sometimes Plus, I'm pretty sure that God is answering my prayer request of surrender and letting go through his ways. What did I take away from Wednesday's Divine News? Firstly, I'm going to write Ron a personal appreciation letter. Secondly, it never hurts to ask someone to take a chance on you, and that is in all caps. Thirdly, paradoxical heaven and ghastly hell are simply neighbors within our existence. And the reaffirmed truth, that life is so very strange. I guess after all, all we can do is to accept life for what it is and be appreciative passengers of the ongoing experience. And trust me, when life humbles you, you better take the lessons deep. And you better bet I'm going to treat my girlfriend 10 times nicer next time. Yeah, that was, those were my five lessons uh, from my four years of chapter in Philadelphia where I once called home. And obviously, Philadelphia would always have a very special place in my heart for all these amazing connections, all these amazing growth I was able to be gifted with through my time there. And as always, I really appreciate and we appreciate everyone for hopping on this journey of discovering More this week with us. And as always, we hope to see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and it would really appreciate if you have subscribed and
1: shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.